0: Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you so much for joining me once again as I talk to an amazing expert about all the things they know that you don't know and that I don't know. We're going to have a great time learning some cool shit together. Now, just to remind you, I am on tour right now. I just got back from an amazing weekend in Boston. Thank you so much to everyone who came out. And up next, I'm headed to Washington, D.C., Nashville, Spokane, Washington, Tacoma, Washington, and New York City. So please, if you want to get tickets, you want to come see me, head to adamconover.net slash tourdates. That's adamconover.net slash tourdates. And of course, if you want to support the show, please support us on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash adamconover and you can get bonus podcast episodes live stand-up I don't post anywhere else and you can join our live Patreon book club that's patreon.com slash Adam Conover now let's talk about animals you know we all know that animals have it pretty rough and not only because of the ceaseless brutality of life and the state of nature nature red and tooth and claw and all that kind of thing I mean Yeah, all that stuff is pretty bad, but we as humans have made it much worse. Through our destruction of the environment and the incredible concentration of suffering we have created through factory farming, we have made life a lot shittier for animals. That is, for the animals that we haven't outright eradicated. Now, if you care about animals, as I do, you might think you have some power as an individual, right? You can forego eating animals if you want, or you could stop using products that lead to their death and suffering. At least those are the methods that we are most often told about by capitalism. But you might be struck by the suspicion that outside of your, you know, laudable decision to stop eating the kind of beef that's made from abusing and constraining calves and avoiding the tuna that has extra dolphin murder in it, well, even if you do all those things, there are still larger and deeper systems of exploitation that you can't help but participate in. You know, even if you swear off beef and stick to Beyond Burgers for the rest of your life, you're still part of a human civilization that is hurting animals on a massive scale. So if you really care about your animal brethren, what approach should you take? Well, as we discussed in a really wonderful episode with Emma Maris that we recorded a couple months back, I I recommend you go back and listen to it after you've heard this one. What approach you take really needs to be driven by what your values are when it comes to animals. What exactly are you trying to improve about their lives? For instance, some people want to focus on reducing animal suffering, just lowering the sum total of animal pain experienced, while as others want to work on animal rights. You know, talking about whether animals deserve autonomy, the right to make their own decisions, to give cows some baseline guarantee that they can wander around in the woods or wherever cows like to be. I don't know a lot about cows, okay? But there's a problem with defining your values so narrowly, because as our guests today compellingly argue, if you choose either one of those ethics, they can end up feeding into the very same systems that exploit these animals today. For instance, you could have a chicken factory that claims to give you pain-free chicken and eggs while it's simultaneously slaughtering billions of chickens. Or you could have a beef factory that says that the cattle are free to roam right on the packaging, which maybe might mean that they have a tiny little, you know, 10 by 10 foot quote field to walk around in before the cows are summarily beheaded. Both of those might be actually marginal improvements. The cows might have a little bit more rights. The chickens might be in a little bit less pain, but Neither of these actually transform the system that is causing so much misery to begin with. And that, by the way, is just the food side. We've just been talking about factory farming so far. Countless animals around the world are injured or killed by human industry, by deforestation, or just by, you know, us clearing habitat so that we can live on it instead. So if we really care about animals and we really care about the natural world, what kind of approach should we actually take? Well, our guests today have a really cool answer to that question. Their answer is that the same systems that kill and hurt animals are also killing and hurting humans and leading to the destruction of the world that we all care about so much. And that if we start to think of ourselves as not set apart from, but actually in the same struggle with animals, then we can begin to map out responses that are true to the monumental challenges we face. Now, I know that sounds like a lot, but they are gonna break it down in this episode. They are incredibly awesome. So please welcome Alice Crary, who's a philosophy professor at the New School for Social Research, and Laurie Gruen, a professor of philosophy and feminist gender and sexuality studies at Wesleyan. Together, they wrote their recent book, Animal Crisis, and I am so excited to have them on the show today. Please welcome Alice Crary and Laurie Gruen. Alice and Laurie, thank you so much for being on the show. It's great well, Thank pleasure. you for having us. So you have this new book called Animal Crisis, and it is about uh, how systems that destroy and hurt animals also do the same to people, or at least that's one of the main ideas of the book. Um, I'd love for you to just start us off there and, and tell us what you mean by that.
1: Oh, sure. Um, um, backing up just a little bit, we're we're um, we're looking at fifty years of discussion. Um, um, around, um, animal protectionism and, uh, um, universities about animal ethics. And, um, we, uh, started to notice, uh, I don't know if it's starting to notice, but we had conversations together years ago where we, sh- we realized we shared a conviction that, um, um, that the ways people were thinking about animal ethics didn't have traction Mm. Um, in the world. It's an observation that um, lots of people make, and we wanted to get animal ethics out of its disciplinary isolation from critical social theories that are thinking about systems that hurt human beings, noticing that they're the same ones that hurt animals. And we also wanted to, yeah, to direct readers' attention to real things that are happening in the world, and have the thinking that people are doing start from attention to actual circumstances where animals are being heard.
2: Mm. Right. So people have been talking about the animal, what we owe animals and our treatment of animals, say in the food system or in the you know sixth mass extinction. And one of the things that has happened is that this way of thinking has tended to sort of have these boxes where you have animals over here and humans over here. And we're we're working to think about the underlying, I'm gonna call it ideologies, but the underlying ideas that actually are the same that's happening with the oppression of racialized and gendered and class-based sort of humans and um, and animals, that there's a really important way in which those structures, those underlying structures need to be brought to light
0: yeah and that they affect both humans and people well let's let's start by talking about animal ethics then if that was you know part of your criticism like how has animal ethics uh worked as a field what are what are the sort of schools of thought and and what are the problems with them in your view
1: well uh, a <laughs> big of, question <laughs> the, no 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 there's a, there are actually some really really prominent trends uh, some of what the work people are doing is really um focused on um um, reducing harms to animal improving animal welfare and and there's another trend in animal ethics that 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 says oh, hey welfare isn't isn't the right way to go. We should be thinking about animal rights. And mm-hmm. we have a lot of respect for a lot of the work that gets done in these areas. it's you know, drawing attention to ways in which animals are harmed and trying to work on mitigating those harms or giving animals new rights that they don't have. But at the same time, a lot of the work is done um, in frameworks that have a tendency to obscure the larger structures that hurt animals and humans together. And so with the best intentions, people who want to make a difference can get involved Um, in these ways and actually not engage um, with the systems that are hurting animals and human beings.
0: Do you have an example of that? Yeah,
1: I
2: was just going to give an example of that. So there's a really exciting and important legal case that many people have heard about in New York about an elephant named named Happy at the Bronx Zoo. Um, And there was a group of animal rights advocates who were trying to um, bring a habeas corpus um writ that, mm. to raise this writ of habeas corpus that happy the elephant is being held without due process of the law. Um, and it, you know, it's a it's a really sort of attention-grabbing gesture. It's a it's a it's a kind of legal move that's unique and somewhat exciting. It's gotten tons of press. Um, And of course, the case didn't go very far because animals don't have rights of that sort legally. Um, And the idea that the organization that brought the suit had is that, well, we weren't really trying to get happy out of the zoo. We were trying to get rights for animals, right? That's one Mm -hmm. really, really serious example. But from our point of view, this is um, the way they made the arguments before the court saying, You know, happy is an elephant and elephants are really highly intelligent and happy, in fact, can recognize herself in a mirror. And that is a really intelligent thing to do. Um, and all of these capacities that are attributed to happy really sort of focus in on some very, very small feature of a much larger problem, a problem of looking at certain kinds of traits or qualities that, you know what, some humans don't have, you know, certain disabled Humans don't have this kind certain kinds of capacities. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's not the right way to be thinking about making arguments for animal rights. Let's think about things in larger context. What is it, what are elephants doing in zoos in the first place? And is it our place to put elephants in zoos? And maybe the legal system itself isn't the right way to be arguing, uh, because as we've seen recently, the legal system isn't um, isn't always interested in quote unquote, justice. So I think that these are some of the issues that we're concerned about.
0: Yeah, we had on the show a number of months back, uh, the wonderful science and nature writer, Emma Maris, who's written a book on this topic. And she uh, you know, my big takeaway from the conversation with her is that we need to get more clear with ourselves about what our values are when it comes to animals, and and what exactly is it that we're trying to do, and that we can really do, we can really be counterproductive when uh, we. You know, focus too narrowly, or we focus on the wrong thing. Um, You know, she uh, uh, uses an example one that really stuck with me is like the public campaign to free the the whale from Free Willy from the movie Free Willy. At great expense, it was a huge public campaign, and it was not actually good for this whale, (laughs) right? It was very narrowly focused on let's free this whale. This is a whale that grew up in captivity that that was not really best served by simply being released into the ocean. Um, and that, you know, the assumption that 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 is what's best is sort of based on a, a I don't know, not having thought through what exactly is it that we would like to accomplish. The public outcry of support for animals in that case and for, you know, uh, uh, whales in captivity is well-intentioned and a real emotional need that people have, but, you know, connecting it to the final outcome is is not really clear. And so we need to get clearer about what, what is it that we care about, about animals? And it's a very difficult question to answer. So I really like that you put, there's an emphasis on in some schools, the suffering of animals that, that we, we say animals feel pain and we don't want them to feel pain. And that might incline you towards a certain set of uh, policy prescriptions. You might say, well, when animals are killed, it should be done very humanely and instantaneously. And we should probably cut down on the eating of meat and et cetera. Um, or you might say, OK, animals are thinking beings with autonomy. I care less about their moment by moment pain and I care more about their own ability to make their own choices in the world <laughs> that's right, that's right. and that sort of thing. Um, and those are two those are two different ways that might lead you towards different outcomes. I'm I'm guessing that you have a perhaps a different way of thinking about what we might value thinking about animals.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, one example to think about what might give you misgivings about a welfare beast approach is to think about some of the contexts in which it's mobilized. For instance, in connection with the food system, you have all kinds of campaigns that get a lot of attention for free range chickens, for cage free circumstances, for um Um, not de-beaking creatures Mm -hmm. for giving um, pigs more space to live. And on the face of it, these things look really good because you're saying we're not going to make animals suffer as badly as all of that. And on the other hand, what the effect of some of these interventions is, is they become greenwashing, in a way, um, strategies, corporate strategies for the meat companies themselves, who can then claim to be on the side of animal welfare and can go on um, expanding the system of industrial animal agriculture that's doing so much damage beyond simply its damage to the welfare of animals. Its, Its environmental damage, its human rights effects it's um, really bad effects on public health, also. Yeah. so so there's an example. and and what we're talking about doing then instead is, Um, inviting people to look historically and politically at the structures that sustain these systems. So in the case of um, industrial animal agriculture, it's not small. This is one of the things that I think helps people to look away because it's daunting. You're saying, look at the way, look at the history of our food system, look at the way in which it's integrated into global capitalism. And you start to see a system which only looks rational it looks like a, a raging social pathology it's only rational from the point of view of capital the the mm. profits made by the meat companies themselves it's um, not a particularly healthy or effective way um, looked at at the whole to feed populations and um, it does incredible damage all at the same time so that would be a way of describing in a particular case the different kind of approach that we're taking
0: Yeah, yeah I just- I, oh, sorry no please go ahead
1: I
2: was just going to say. I mean, one of the ways. I mean, what Alex was just saying, which is so right, is that that this is a this is a big system. It's a it's a huge system. But it's really interesting also to think there are maybe five or six international multinational corporations that are running the entire food system. And so, if you look at just one like Tyson's, they kill one hundred and fifty five thousand cows, four hundred sixty one thousand pigs, and forty five million chickens per week. Per week, wow. and that's just one of these. Six kind of companies. Um, so there's a, there is a magnitude of suffering pain, um, and all of the other horrible consequences for humans and the environment that come from this food system. But it's a real condensation of power and capital in the hands of what amounts to basically six multinational corporations.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you look at the size of it, uh, you, you have those extremely large numbers of the number of cows, you know, hundreds of thousands of cows, millions of chickens a week that are killed. Uh, what, what boggles my mind is when I think about, when we're talking about industrial agriculture, I believe it's something like most mammals and birds alive on earth today are uh, our food supply. Uh, when you look at, I forget if it's by biomass, like their literal weight or by the number of them. But, you know, if you look at like all of, so, uh, <laughs> I wish I had the Cer- pie charts certainly, in
1: front of me. But no, but certainly by biomass.
0: That's right. <laughs> yes, certainly by biomass. Like if just most animals alive are chickens and cows and pigs. That's the case. Like vastly, you know, when when you watch, you uh, You know, a nature documentary on television is showing you all these wonderful species around the world. There's so few of them compared to the number of cows that are just standing around in stalls. Um, And the fact that all of that, you know, massive concentration of life is controlled by uh, such a small number of companies is enormous. And I take your point about, uh, you know, if you're focusing too much on suffering, for instance, and you have that sort of approach of, hey, we just want to reduce some suffering as long as I've reduced some animal suffering. That's great. Well, like there's an egg company I uh, that uh, called, I think Chino Valley Farms or something like that in uh, here in California. And I know this because this is the only egg company that serves one of my local grocery stores, the only one that does delivery. And so I, I'm often trying to buy eggs from this company. And, uh, this is a company that has, they've got the regular eggs for, you know, two fifty a carton. Then they've got the expensive eggs for $4 a carton. Then they've got the really expensive eggs for $6 a carton. And the $4 and $6 cartons have escalating claims about how well the chickens are treated. You know, that this, this one is a uh, vegetarian feed only. And then the $6 a carton is like, Oh, they get to go outside and stuff. And you open the box and it's got a little picture of like, here's the happy, where the happy chickens go. But if you look at, I, I was, I was like, let me look up this company. And, You know, according to the uh, organizations that review the conduct of these companies, it's like this is these chickens are all coming from the same place. They've got a little the six dollar a a box uh, eggs. Those chickens have like there's a little patio that they can go on every once in a while kind of stuff. It's like a very, very marginal improvement. And if even if you say, okay, those chickens that if I buy the six dollar chickens, I'm reducing uh, the, the suffering of those chickens by 5%, and that's better than 0%, hey, okay, well, it's a marginal improvement. It's not a, at all addressing the overall system that is leading to not just suffering, but also death, and also environmental pollution, all these other things that you're talking about. So, I, I I get what you're saying. If you adopt that framework of, like, well, hey, reducing some suffering is better than none, you end up making policy tweaks that, you know, maybe slow the amount of overall pain that is being inflicted, but don't actually do anything to solve the problem that we're concerned about. Am I somewhere in the right ballpark?
1: Yeah, I think we would even say it's slightly stronger. You can be perpetuating the very problem that you set out to address Mm. because
0: you're you're greasing its wheels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So tell me more about the approach that that you take towards uh, animal ethics uh, so one thing that's really important so we
1: we just talked about welfare, but we haven't talked about rights and Yes, and please. some rights approaches are really interesting, and they're you know people talking so traditional um Um, animal ethics focused on negative rights, rights not to be killed, but not to be caused pain. But there is some interesting work in um, animal politics recently, which is on things like really thinking about what it would be to have a community, an interspecies community in which animals had an appropriate complement of rights. But sometimes the the description of those rights runs afoul of a kind of similar problem, again, as well-intentioned as it is, where you might be talking about, say, well, a working animal, say a dog who's um, been a guide dog should have various rights in retirement or a horse that's done some work should have rights in retirement. These are discussions that animal ethicists have. And sometimes those discussions of rights Again, are in a sense carving out spheres of inviolability within a in a much larger system in which um, animals and humans are in hierarchical structures with each other, and those structures aren't being addressed. So you might have you might do some good locally, but you haven't addressed the way in which capitalist structures. I'm going to use the language of capitalism because what you're we have structures where the pursuit of profit and um, the emphasis on production over reproduction um, makes it um, almost inevitable that he, certain human beings will be exploited and that, it will, um, that that animals and the rest of nature will be treated as free resources. So you still have a sort of structure that aligns vulnerable human beings and animals. And we're going for the structures. We want to talk about the structures that, that non-accidentally keep these forms of suffering together.
2: Mm. Yeah, and another way of, another way of thinking about that same important point about the rights discourse, and it's very related to the, the issue of suffering and animal welfare is, and what Alice said a moment ago about it being, um, to some extent self-defeating is that, um, as I was suggesting with, with Happy and the legal system and legal rights, which are different than the kinds of moral rights or political rights that Um, We're talking about now. But the idea is that there's these frameworks that are in place um, that have led us to this problem. These frameworks aren't like neutral to start with. And somehow we've just got the wrong people or the wrong beings with rights. So it's not that you can extend Rights that already exist in these frameworks to animals, which is part of what the, the political move is, that the very formation of these rights systems have already excluded, um, indigenous people, racialized people, certain genders. I mean, I think that this is a, this is an important criticism that we, we raise, that it's, it, the system itself isn't broken. It's not that it needs to be extended. The system is working the way it was designed to work. And so what we need to do is interrogate the system and start thinking in alternative terms, for example, solidarity and other forms of sort of resistance to these Mm. systems.
0: Okay, I think I'm starting to get this, but it's still a little bit abstract, if, if you don't mind my saying so. So could we get concrete? I'd love to talk about some examples of, you know, structures that, as you say, are, uh, you know, inflicting suffering or, or imposing hierarchies on animals, but are doing the same to, to people as well.
1: Sure. I think we want to talk, we're going to talk about some concrete cases. So I'll get, I'll introduce another one. Um, I'm going to flag the fact that we've already talked about one and go back to it. But, and eventually I think we should also talk about something that may sound abstract, but that helps explain what we're talking about, which is forms of dehumanization that yoke Mm. humans and animals together. So here, and so, in talking about the food system, we're talking about one case. So so we haven't talked very much about harms to human beings um, in, say, industrial slaughterhouses, but there's incredible documentation from groups like Human Rights Watch about human rights abuses that happen in industrial slaughterhouses. Um, working conditions that are incredibly dangerous. Um, attempts to tamp down efforts at unionization, um, and also um, an attempt to hire or or find economic pressures in marginalized, already economically marginalized communities towards hiring people who are largely immigrant and non-white. And mm-hmm. so, should they witness abuses in the slaughterhouse or in, in and and often do want to talk about things that they saw going on they think the public should know about are in a disadvantaged position to be listened to. So the slaughterhouse and the industrial agricultural food system really is a concrete case of the kind of thing we're talking about. Another kind of case of what we're talking about are places in which... um, um, industries like the palm oil industry are um, engaged in wide, wide scale deforestation, which is harmful to um, um, animal populations. Um, for instance, in Sumatra and Borneo, you have um, palm oil plantations that are devastating orangutan populations. And they're also incredibly harmful. They have long, they're long. Colonial and industrial histories to these problems, but they're devastating to local populations too. And some of that is health effects of the burning of um, the original forests to create palm oil plantations. But there are other forms of violence too, like the threatening, the you know, the violent threatening of journalists who are reporting on what's happening and pressure on local populations to allow companies access. And things like that. so there's another really concrete case where you have violence um, and suffer or, or devastation of animal populations alongside real harms to human beings,
0: yeah, I mean, just to go back to industrialized food production for a second, um first of all, on my most recent uh, Netflix show The G Word, we visited a uh, Cargill beef processing plant. I'm not sure <laughs> if you saw this episode. We were one of the first camera crews to go there in 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 there many decades, and it's a it's a shocking workplace to visit, you know, um, it's, uh, it's extremely loud. It's, you can see the potential for accident is everywhere. Um, we were there to see how the USDA does their work. Um, but we were very aware while we were there that, you know, during, uh, the early days of the COVID-19 crisis, when, uh, these places were uh, classified as essential, essential workplaces, uh, there was incredible spread of COVID-19 in these locations, um, and, you know, they're they're closed to media crews for a reason. We were the first camera crew to go to one of these places for decades for a reason. Um, and, uh, you know, you also have the sense that, you know, this is a plant that's in the middle of nowhere almost. These are, you know, everyone who works there is very dependent on the plant. Uh, many, many immigrants, um, many uh, undocumented immigrants, folks like that. It's like clearly a, a vulnerable workforce. And there's, you know, the Smithfield uh, pork union drive was like one of the longest, most difficult union drives in in recent American history. So that, all, all those points are taken really well. Um, but you write, I would love to talk more about Borneo and Sumatra. Oh, I'm sorry. did you have something?
2: I do. I mean, I want to talk about Borneo and Sumatra too, because palm oil is something I'm, kind of, yeah. I'm obsessed with. But um, I, before we do that, I think there's a really important point that you just made about out of sight. And this is a very important point. Um, point for our work as well. Mm. So these factories are out of sight, much like prisons are out of sight in very, this isn't an accident. This is what we're getting at. This is part of the structure that these are um, places that we want to hide from, make sure we don't have in our minds. And so I think part of the work that we're doing um, is trying to bring in these um, not just these sites, but also the ways in which hiding these things is central to the working, like the working of the system. If you yeah. don't see it, you can't protest. If you don't see what's happening, you can't really take responsibility. You, and so, if you if you're if these things are occluded, and you're not they're not available to us to see. Um, to some extent, it's really hard to know what to resist. And so part of what I was saying earlier, which is a little abstract, as you said, is that there's these ideologies, and these ideologies are ideologies to obscure, hide, or prevent from view these very, very damaging structures or violent structures for both humans and for other animals.
1: Then I want I want you guys to talk about um, um, Borneo oh, well. and Samadhi. I want you to talk about Pamela too, but, but I was just going to say, we can make the idea of ideology really concrete. I mean, just the fact that you have buildings that are somewhat nondescript that are hidden away, that's a, a, a kind of a physical practice to keep you from noticing things. These laws to keep activists from going, filming, what's going on, that's a legal strategy to keep people from seeing things. The fact that... Um, um, that we talk about um, meat as meat instead of as animal body parts. We talk about pork and hamburger um, and mm-hmm. bacon instead of what it is that's actually there in front of us. That's a linguistic way. And there are material ways and the way animals get packaged out, coming out of these things. So you can go to your grocery store and do your meat shopping and not really notice what it is that you're buying, even though at some level, you know it another level. You can distance yourself from it. And the things we're talking about, about the kinds of um, economically vulnerable human populations who are brought into work here, that's another level of, you know, you get people who are going to have a harder time making the public know what's going on. That's a kind of social strategy for making things invisible. There's great work on all these topics.
0: Yeah. I mean, (laughs) when you buy, when when you're shopping in the grocery store, Uh, there's no, there's no label on, you know, there's a nutrition label on your food. There's an ingredient label on your food. There's no label that shows you what it's like in the places where, where these things were made. Um, there's no, we have no connection to that. And it's something that's almost, that was why we were so excited to cover it on our show, because it's something that we so rarely have any glimpse into. Um, we talk about and we almost never see. Uh, so, well, let's talk about, uh, you know, I, I look at the back of my food all the time. I see palm oil listed as an ingredient. Absolutely. Um, and I've heard that palm oil is bad. It wasn't until I was reading the beginning of your book that I really started to accept the, the gravity of the problem that, you know, Borneo and Sumatra are these places that are islands that, uh, have species that are not found anywhere else, endangered species, endangered great ape species. Um, and these habitats are being replaced with What? Palm oil fields, mm -hmm.
2: monocrops, Mm -hmm. uh,
0: and, and at great, at great destructive expense. Tell me more about how that came about.
2: Well, part of it is, um, I mean, ironically, part of the palm oil, um, industry was to create so-called sort of a uh, biofuel, but it ended up being, um, much more environmentally destructive than, uh, um, was imagined. And, and essentially what, what ended up happening in the way that many monocrops happen is that they, uh, the multinational corporations decided to um, cut down these beautiful, uh, rich, biodiverse rainforests in order to plant these monocrops Um, and the demand for palm oil was high, but interestingly and importantly in the workings of capital that the corporations themselves made it so that it was needed in every product. It does keep for a long time on the shelf. So that's Mm. one of the features of palm oil that makes it exciting. But just like, you know, some of the dairy products, there's a, you might have read or know that there's a sort of a glut of dairy. And so now there's whey in most every product. (laughs) just to Mm. get rid of the product. It's not that this ingredient is necessary. It's that, well, we have something to sell, let's sell it. Um, So this is part of this, this system. But what happened in Borneo and Sumatra, and it's a very complicated story, I won't get into all the details, but part of what happened is that there was a recognition that there was a disempowered group of indigenous folks who didn't really have formalized land claim structures. So it was easy for the corporations to go in and make somewhat shady deals so that the the native inhabitants didn't really get the profits that they were promised or imagined. And this is a practice that's very, very familiar. Unfortunately, one of the things that's happening, and as you say, it's in Borneo and Sumatra are islands. They have um, beautiful and amazing and unique wildlife that is being destroyed as the forests are being destroyed. Um, orangutans, the great apes, are one um, endangered species um, or group of species that are being um Threatened, but there are others. There are forest elephants and, and snow leopards, other, other creatures that are, um, being threatened. And one of the things that worries me about the great demand, um, and, uh, production of palm oil is now that there is, um, they've pretty much covered Borneo and Sumatra. I think, um, one of the statistics that we f- discovered is that it's something like, um, they provide at the moment 86% of the world's supply of, um, wow. palm oil. And that's wow. like 20 pounds of palm oil per person. So it's 72 million tons. It's a, it's a, it's a ton of, ton per of person tons. person a year? Yeah. Um, wow. and part of, um, what's happening is that the demand and the supply concerns are getting greater, that they're now moving, um, Palm oil plantations to Equatorial Africa. Now again, Equatorial Africa is an area that the other great apes live, gorillas um, and chimpanzees and bonobos. And these um the deforestation in those areas um, has already been quite elaborate. But the introduction of palm oil plantations into that part of the world um, will be devastating for the wildlife. And importantly, I think people in those countries imagine that they're going to profit and also benefit from these corporations. And usually it's not how this works. It does not trickle down from the people who are making the arrangements with the corporations to the native populations. And so yeah. this is bad for people and it's bad for animals and it's bad for the planet. It's bad for the climate. Um, and it, so that means it's bad for not just the people in those areas, but it's bad for all of us.
0: There might be a few people in that country who are who are going to make some money, who who make the deals for the government or et cetera, who who are able to profit off of it. The people who who actually, you know, are able to sign the land away or whatever. But the 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 population in general, the people who actually live there are, are not going to. And you say demand. The demand for palm oil, but it's not as though I'm sitting here in Los Angeles saying, "Get me my palm oil! I gotta have palm oil." I'm fine with canola oil. I mean, maybe I don't know the conditions under which canola oil is made. I believe it's just farmed in Canada. Probably less great apes uh, die as a result of canola (laughs) oil uh, being produced, so I can stir fry my tofu, but. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not demanding this. This is not a, this is not a necessity for anyone on earth that says, I got to have this palm oil. Um, They could put something else in the Cheez-Its and I would be just fine with it. Um,
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. But I think the other thing to keep in mind about demand is it's not usually consumer demand. It's corporate demand, right? So this is a, this is, this is the demand is coming from, let's say Ritz crackers. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, they want their products to have a longer shelf life. That's Financially beneficial to the corporation, they're demanding palm oil. Um, The breakfast cereals, the um, margarines, all of these, um, and it's also—it's not just food stuff. It's also in shampoo, and it's also in. um, I mean, it's everywhere. If you look, it's everywhere. So I think it's not us demanding it. We don't. We don't actually. Sometimes it's on on packages, and you don't even know what it is. So it's not. It's not individual consumers at all. It's corporate producers that need this ingredient in their yeah. products. So that's where the demand is. But I'm glad you clarified that. I think it's important to clarify that. Well,
0: But when you say that, uh, you know, this is the deforestation in that example is very clearly affecting both animals and humans that are, uh, you know, both have, have lived in these areas for, for untold amounts of time and, and are now being forced out of them and affected by these farming practices. Well, look, uh, we have to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Lori Gruen and Alice Crary. Okay, we're back with Laurie Gruen and Alice Crary. So we've talked about how... Uh, we've talked about different frameworks for animal ethics and about how a more effective way to, to think about it might be to think about how the systems that are in place affect both humans and animals um, and uh, contribute to destruction that affects all of our species. What should we do with this understanding? <laughs> what, is the, what is the next step once we've started to analyze uh, animal, uh, you know, animal issues in this way.
2: Well, I think, I think, I mean, one of the things that I think is really important, um, and we mentioned it briefly, but I think it's important to get into is this idea of the structure as, as Alice put it, and I'll turn it over to her, but the structures of dehumanization, it's, it's important to first understand the structures of dehumanization in order to sort of resist them. So maybe mm. Alice could talk, tell us, do you want to Alice?
1: Sure, um, I'd be happy to um I mean I, I do think we should get to the the issue of sort of concrete solutions, but I think it is Laurie's absolutely right. This was my reason for thinking we should talk about dehumanization. Um, so one of the things to bear in mind, and this is incredible I, I found it incredibly illuminated when illuminating when I first started to work on these issues, is that we often dehumanize, not just often, we systematically over centuries dehumanize human beings through what is sometimes called animalization. That is, we use comparisons to animals, to demean human beings, mm. and and this is central to the dehumanizing oppression of human outgroups, and it's even deeper than that. I think there's incredible historical genealogical work about the construction of categories of, say, race, gender, and disability, which show that um, that we've created these categories through animalization. We need, you know, we we there is a kind of political, social, as it were, need for people um, who are less empowered. And we create those categories. And so when you put that together with society-wide practices of denigrating non-human animals, and treating them as disposable objects, animalization can lead to terrible harms to human beings. Now, one of the things that we're interested in in the book is the fact that this carves out a political logic, This the fact of animalization at such a systematic and wide scale. It carves out a political logic that makes it seem as though we're what we're talking about in our work together is the wrong way to go. Because it makes it seem like oppressed human groups achieve liberation by showing, hey, we're human, so we're above animals. Because the that's what the pressure of animalization does. I don't want that to happen to me. So one of the things we're doing in the work we're doing together is telling a story that makes it possible to see both that that logic is totally understandable, while also seeing that there's a sense in which it's deeply, deeply counterproductive. So, um just to give a sort of a sense of this, I mean, there is great work in social psychology on causal relationships between thought and conduct that place animals below humans and the dehumanizing treatment of human outgroups. That's just empirical. If you are um, um, uh, placing, um, you know, sort of subjecting animals, then the chances are much higher that you're going to be treating human beings badly. But more centrally, what we're doing is um, resisting the devaluation of animal life that makes animals seem to be available as disposable objects, as points of comparison in this large political system. And that puts us in a position to talk about really significant bonds of solidarity between humans and animals. So in a sense, the thing we've been talking about through this whole conversation isn't something we can take for granted. We're saying, hey, huge huge wrongs to humans and animals from the same structures. Well, the way a lot of people think about animals, those aren't really wrongs to animals. So we need to recover the value of animal life in order to be able to talk about a structure in which, hey, resubjecting animals isn't the way to go. The way to go is to see that we're all being wronged, we're all being harmed, and solidarity and alliances is the way forward.
0: So, oh my anyway. gosh, there's so much I want to pull apart there. That's that's wonderful. I'm sorry, you you. Uh, no, you no, go ahead, go
1: ahead, go ahead, go ahead.
0: Well, it it's really fascinating to me because I do think about. Uh, when I think about animals, right, I, I do, I've thought a lot about how I make, um, judgments about how I think about animals in relation to myself, you know, just, just from sort of a, a, uh, you know, undergraduate philosophy degree sort of level, like how do I think about animal consciousness? You know, this is something that I always end up talking about when I talk with Emma Maris or anyone else in this, in this field, Um, but you know, there's this sort of instinctive thing that you do where you say, okay, well this animal, you know, my dog, uh, has, has many traits that I recognize in myself. My dog has dreams. That's a pretty good piece of evidence that my dog is conscious. Right. And I value my dog's life. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure I could find the same things in a cow, right? I find less in a lobster and, uh, you know, with a, uh, you know a, a lobster I then think or an arthropod of any kind <laughs> right I go okay i i I end up going all right I do think that this is less human this is less of a conscious thing and that therefore I, I have a little bit less of an eth- ethical obligation to it perhaps um that that's something that I've thought about a lot and i i i i I, I don't know I've never never really held firm to it um but uh, i I do think it influences my thinking but I wonder if there's a difference between recognizing the difference between myself and an animal and putting a value judgment on it. If that, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. So I think, I mean, there's a lot of things I wanted, I wanted to respond to, and I know we also probably want to put octopus on the table, not on the table, but on our conversational table.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Octopus are a great example that people often use here. I'd love to hear you talk about that.
2: We, we, We have done that. So anyway, I, but I, I think, um, I want it, but I did want to just say one, one thing about the, um, the kind of sameness difference approach that you were just discussing. And yeah. so one of the very central, um, theories that we find important is ecofeminist theory. It's a very structural part of what we're thinking about and doing. And the, there's many different kinds of ecofeminist theory. And but one of the central insights, again, from 50 years ago, even if you think about it, this from the 1970s, is this idea that there's somehow the way that we value things is in virtue of how similar the thing is to us. Right. Um, but what eco have argued importantly is that politically and in terms of relations or taxonomies of power, there's actually a way in which, as Alice was saying a moment ago, we We create differences purposely so to exclude. Mm, We exclude, mm, right? You're not enough like us, so we're going to put you over there. You don't share our skin colors, so we're going to colonize you. We're, see, so that there's a way in which these similarities and differences aren't, they're, they're constructed to create these hierarchies that we're talking about. And so one of the things that we're doing in our work is showing the ways in which Difference needs to be valued itself. That we shouldn't yeah. we shouldn't elevate beings because they're the same as us, because that creates these power problems that have affected humans and animals, um, our relationships with human other humans and animals. And so that's one of the things
1: I wanted to add there. But I know I think Alice might want to talk about octopus, don't you? <laughs> no, I see you wanting to talk about octopus. Actually, no. I thought this was a really like I'd love to talk about octopuses, but. In a sense, I want to talk about insects because <laughs> I think I think people when they get—I mean, octopuses are so there's something like you know our our closest evolutionary ancestor goes back hundreds of millions of years, and so octopuses so, are really that's true, and so so hundreds of millions, yes, and um and uh, and so they are sort of marvelously strange to us, but they're also wildly intelligent. Once you take the time to spend time with them. I think it's worth talking here about insects um, and explaining why it is we talk in our book about insects, because nobody's going to sit with a tick or a mosquito and say, oh, I'm going to respect you because you're kind of like me. Or maybe (laughs) you will. I mean, I actually I can get in the mindset where I have like glorious creature on Earth with only one mortal life. But but look, the idea of talking about insects for us is to get out of the mindset where if you're doing ethical and political intervention, what you're doing is creating a new hierarchy because almost you start to talk about welfare and even people who are talking about rights are often saying, here's who has, you know, welfare needs, here's who has rights needs. So, you know, you have your algorithm ahead of time, you know, who matters more and no, no matter who you are, insects come out towards the bottom. And, um, one thing that's problematic from our point of view is that you've simply maybe softened and made slightly less uh the same kind of uh, human-animal hierarchies that have done so much damage over centuries. But another thing that we're interested in is really changing the conversation and saying, actually, that's always a way of just... Submitting to prejudice, you 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 think oh it's somehow some theory is gonna like handle the the task of judgment for me. No, we need to look at the complexity of our ecological relationships in particular cases, and we can't stave that off to theory. No theory is gonna answer it for us. So we talk about insects partly to say hey this is a case we we need to look at our we have really conflictual relationships with some insects if we don't think about the ecological values in play, we wind up responding to those conflicts with things like uh, toxic insecticides that kill all sorts of creatures, many more than the insects we regard as pests, and wind up being sometimes fatal, but at least harmful to Mm -hmm. human populations as well. So so insects are a part of our story, too, and that's not a case where you're going to be tempted to say, like my dog, you dream, so I'm going to pay attention (laughs) to you.
0: Right. Right. And and I say you're really helpfully complicating for me that that way that I've thought about which which is by the way it's not a way the, the similarity difference model is not something that I've ever felt is correct it's just been like how else do I think about it you know Um, and uh, it, it what you're saying connects it with another thought that I've had which is that using that model really uh, leads you down a bad path in other ways because just for instance taking uh, someone who speaks a different language than you someone who is disabled in a way that makes them different from you if you're like well this person is very different from me this person doesn't have language that I can understand this person doesn't do XYZ that I do Um, you therefore they're different from me therefore they are less conscious therefore they are less uh, something that I have less of an ethical obligation to or any of these things that you might I suppose file under dehumanization that's that's a dangerous I know that's a dangerous road to go down with humans Um, and so that makes sense to me that it's also a dangerous road to go down to go down with animals and it helps me connect what you're saying that like the the same systems that we use to dehumanize other people are the same ones that we might use to dehumanize animals the same system that puts uh people who You know, don't speak English who are uh, not white people uh, who don't have the same legal protections into a horrible meat factory to work in, you know, out of view of everybody else is the same system that put the animals there. Is that, uh, am I starting to get it? Yeah, that's it. it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, great. And it
2: goes the other direction as well, right? So this is important. So it's, and I I just want to add one quick thing about the insects and and, uh, tie this together is that part of what we should do is stop thinking of ourselves sort of as either individuals or representatives of a, a group that somehow homogenous, that we recognize these interconnections and these complicated relations that we're in. And sometimes we're not aware of all of the implications of what it is we're doing, like what Alice was saying. You know, the idea that somehow I'm not going to try to get rid of mosquitoes, which are are apex predators have killed more human beings than than any other thing in in our history. Mm -hmm. Of course, we're not saying, oh, well, no, just make friends with the mosquitoes and maybe they won't harm you. That's not what we're saying. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> but, uh, this is going to be my question, yeah.
2: I'm but, not not friends with
1: mosquitoes. No, ticks, not friends with ticks.
2: mosquitoes. But the idea then is um, we need to, though, to recognize that the mosquito is part of an ecological network, as Alice said, and that somehow we need to be very specific in figuring out the kind of interconnections between us. And I think part of the problem we have with other humans that what Alice was calling human outgroups. And I think that's the right way to think about it, but also all other animals is that we somehow aren't recognizing that we're already interconnected. We're all and in this sort of in this global crisis, in this animal crisis, these connections are really important to bring into view. And they're particular kinds of connections. They're not going to be connections that are going to exist in every context, but focusing in on, um, the, larger connected relations that we're in is one way we need to start addressing these crises.
0: Yeah. It sounds like there's also, I keep hearing you say the word hierarchy, um, that uh, you know, reducing the amount of hierarchical relationships that we consider ourselves to be in with animals would, would seem to be important, that we uh, less placing ourselves above, right? And more placing ourselves in a network with. But I'm curious what that looks like you know, in terms of policies that we might enact or our day-to-day interactions with animals. I mean, again, just take the case of my dog, and it's a very specific case, right? But like, you know, dogs literally just evolved to eat human trash, right? We have humans throwing out trash, you know, uh, canines start getting close, they start eating the garbage, you know, and now they just sort of live around human civilizations as a... The, you know, sort of client species of human cities, right? That that to me seems to be a relationship that is to some extent inherently hierarchical. Um, but I, I'm not sure if that actually, I, I'm not sure how you think about, like how you fit it into your framework or what like, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, how we might reconceive of that relationship or the relationship with any animal in a non-hierarchical way.
2: Well, I think there's two things that um, come to mind immediately. And one of the things is that, you um, Recognizing the dog, and I think you'd probably do this with your dog. I certainly do with my dog. They have different interests, different likes, different personalities. One is a little bit too barky. The other one mm-hmm. gets barky in response to the other one being barky. The other one doesn't like either of the barky. So, you know what I mean? So it's, yeah. a, the, there's, there's very specific um, values that the animals themselves are are showing us mm-hmm. and we need to see them. We need to see them as the individuals that they are and the relationships that we're in with them mm. can highlight those those expressions of their own way of being in the world. So that's that's one thought. The other thought I wanted to share, and this is something that we, we have been working on, um, is that there are multiple instances of communities that are intentional communities Of multi-species living. So sanctuaries are a good example of this, Mm. animal sanctuaries, where um, individuals are able to live free of harm or as free of harm as one can be. Um, They're captive nonetheless, but they have a a great amount of freedom. They're able to express their personalities. They're able to live with their offspring. They're able to um, make friends with members of other species. And we learn a lot about sort of multi-species living by um, attending to those actual existing spaces.
0: That's really beautiful.
2: (laughs) (laughs) They're beautiful places too. They're really quite inspiring. Um, And the ways in which um, they also serve as as sites of rescue for animals that have been in different kinds of contexts. But getting to watch, you know, so um, emus... (laughs) that are in petting zoos and then the petting zoo closes because the economy was bad and where are these emus going to go emus don't live in the united states um they've been hunted in australia for ages but i think this this sort of being around these sort of gigantic birds some of whom actually like hanging out with goats it's it's wild it's a wild thing and it, it opens up All sorts of imaginative possibilities.
0: Well, and this is everyone's favorite form of TikTok content is uh, animals that have learned to be friends. Animals that, (laughs) animals that (laughs) were, people, uh, uh, people love this stuff. Um, Well, so uh, I'd love to go back to mosquitoes actually for a second. Like, is there a, if we're talking about, you know, this is a species that we have a, uh, a really fraught relationship with, as you said. Um, and, you know, uh, trying to prevent deaths from malaria is like an important human goal. Um, is how might we approach that differently if we are trying to you know, take the broader view that that you suggest, like uh, rather than would we, for instance, you know, in some areas they're trying to uh, reduce or eliminate mosquito populations by releasing sterilized mosquitoes that like overwhelm the breeding population. There's there's that sort of uh, genetic intervention. Um, is that the kind of intervention that you're like, we're not a fan of that. We propose X, Y, Z, or is that not do you not have a specific policy prescription? I'm just sort of curious
1: we weren't we were not proposing a specific policy prescription with regard to the managing of mosquito populations <laughs> yeah, but we are, task we, are, we, are <laughs> we are we are we are drawing attention to um, Um, various ways in which um, the problem with the problem, there are a bunch of things we're doing, but one is drawing attention to the ways in which the systems and structures we're talking about are affecting the problems human beings have with mosquitoes. So one Mm. of the things we're drawing attention to is how anthropogenic climate change has actually... um, Um, made worse. Um, Certain kinds of migration patterns of mosquitoes has brought different diseases to different places, to populations who haven't been exposed to them and are more vulnerable in the face of them. And so we're 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 looking at ways we're talking about ways in which we uh, we um, in which human activity has been insensitive to the ecological values that we need to pay attention to in order to intervene. So we we are talking about the history of the development of things like insecticides and how they've been used in ways that simply don't respect the conditions even for us of life on Earth, and at the same time saying um and this is a really important um second point next to that is that there is no life on earth without conflicts among species so so mm. we have a lot to say about how a kind of non-exploitative uh, what we would call politically vegan existence that uh, that that's, that's that simply in some sense perfectly abstains from, um, consuming, using animal products is a kind of fantasy in today's global world. It's mm. just that animal products are so pervasive. Glory was listing before foods and products in which they show up. So that's not impossible, but I think sometimes people start to imagine their, their own personal forms of ecotopia where an interspecies community, where you have a kind of, even in a, you know, um, um a, a separate uh community you have sort of like the perfect democratic human and animal set of relationships even in those cases um, you can't we don't we don't have forms of agriculture ways of farming um, that don't kill some animals it's it is a condition of life on earth again going back hundreds of millions of years and so it is something to be taken into account um, that that um, that the values that we're talking about need to reflect the real conditions of what life on this planet is for us
2: yeah and and I understand that the we don't we don't expect or imagine that there's going to just be this sort of um ecotopias as I'll put it or you know sort of this harmonious sort of we're all living happily ever after and that's a little bit fantastic but i also think that what has happened instead is we think well we have to kill things to exist so that's it's not worth thinking about it anymore it's justified and i want to mm. think i want i want to think about no, we have to do certain things that are really um, devastating to others. And we should we should own that devastation. We should pay attention to that disvalue we're creating. We should not pretend we did not do those things. And yeah. so, so it's not a choice between sort of – it's not a choice between like perfect ecotopian harmony and it's okay. Humans can do whatever they want. We don't have to think about it. There's a really messy place in between um, – That we need to work on and bring into focus.
0: I love that. And you're actually helping me connect this to uh, uh a (laughs) a whole emotional journey I went through a number of years ago when I was really learning about climate change and, and, you know, the sixth extinction and, and all of these ideas, you know, the idea that God, every action I take as a human being on earth is, you know, resulting in, uh, you know, species collapse and, and, you know, is affecting uh, the natural world and that, you know, it's impossible for me to live without affecting the natural world. And, And I was sort of paralyzed by that. And by talking to, A lot of different, uh, you know, environmental philosophers, uh, a wonderful man named Dale Jameson, a bunch of other people, Emma Maris is another person, (laughs) uh, came to realize that, you know, uh, it's uh, trying to focus so much on, like, uh, abstention and on uh, myself as an individual causing no impact is a fantasy and that, the more important thing to do is to realize, oh, I do have an impact. Um, and I, that gives me control over the situation. That gives me the ability to say, to decide what kind of impact I'm going to have um, it, it, in a more sort of fully visioned way. And that, what you're saying actually really helps me connect that to, you know, the idea of uh, say, hey, I'm just, I'm I'm never going to kill another animal. I'm, I'm not going to eat meat. I'm going to avoid all those things individually is equally a fantasy. Um, I mean, it's not, wrong to to try to you know uh, affect one's diet to to kill less things or whatever but that uh having uh, having the idea that we're going to have that impact no matter what we do is like an important first step because then we can start talking about what kind of impact do we want to have um, rather than trying rather than trying to get it to zero, try to affect the direction of it in, instead. Is that a, a, an an OK, dumb, dumb version of what you said? <laughs> it,
1: it's it's really, really good. And but I Thank think you. the most important thing that you said is get it off the individual, which doesn't mean that we yes. as individuals don't have responsibility, but it but it's. It's a politically convenient myth for corporations, Mm -hmm. governments, political systems, that all we need is a virtuous populace in which individuals are going to do the right thing. On the contrary, we are all from the most oppressed of us to the very richest, we are caught up in a larger system, which is has its wheels turning and is devastating the earth at the moment, humans and animals alike. And we need to think about the kind of change we want in terms of world system. And solidarity. Yeah. okay great that,
0: that is what i wanted to end on because you had mentioned solidarity a few times um in my <laughs> work as a, as a labor activist i talk about solidarity quite a lot um and i want to talk about what solidarity means on a uh, you know on a day-to-day level uh between humans and animals it doesn't just have to be day-to-day but since we're at the end of the show uh or getting there i'd love to talk about how we can have solidarity with animals in our daily lives or how we can move towards it what does solidarity with animals mean to mean to you
1: um, i'll say one thing which is slightly on the abstract level and i'll let laurie handle concretes but one thing is in and, and the language that we use in our work is recognizing animal dignity and mm. um and that's actually a really radical thing to do unsurprisingly given european modern histories of animalizing human beings it's kind of unsurprising For those of us who read philosophy to discover that in the modern period, dignity has mostly been thought of as something human beings achieve by being positioned over animal life. And so, the way our intellectual traditions come down to us, the very idea of animal dignity seems like an oxymoron. So, one of the things we're trying to do is reclaim it. That's the, when I was saying earlier, that's the kind of shift in the way we value things um, that would allow us to talk about structures actually harming human beings and animals alike, because animals have to be the kind of creatures who can be, they have the kind of dignity that allow them to be harmed by systems that commodify them and dispose of them. So that's the abstract point. Go ahead for the concretes. <laughs> I'm going to try to just well, be, be very specific. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead.
0: Oh, oh, I just want to say I finally got something that you said earlier, which is mm. I, I like finally understood it because you're you're saying that so often. You this connects to something you were saying before that so often when we try to make the. Uh, claim that a human group is worthy of respect. We're, we're saying no, no. This is this is a human. This is not an animal, right? We previously classified this sort of disabled person or this sort of ethnic group as being sort of animalistic, animalistic, and you know, now in our more enlightened phase, we say, okay, no, these are these are humans. These are people. And when you know, in many cases, we've made the claim for animal uh, rights. We're saying no, no. They're, they're a lot like humans. They can see themselves in a mirror. And that's right. And that is the mistake. We should be saying. Saying, no animals themselves are worthy of dignity in that's fact it, exactly it right. wouldn't be that's an insult exactly to say right. you're kind of like an animal even if it were the case because that's well animals themselves should have dignity and and value and and all those things uh etc that's not necess- it's not a bad thing to be unlike a human to be an animal um so i i just finally like it got <laughs> it got all the way through into the middle of me um and i wanted to flag that so i'm sorry please please go on laurie
2: Okay. So I just wanted to make some, uh, a concrete sort of case for solidarity, um, that recognizes, um, cases of humans that are denied dignity and animals that are denied dignity. I mean, I just mentioned briefly the students that I work with who are incarcerated. And when I teach about animals in the prison context, I'm always just so overwhelmed by the immediacy with which incarcerated student, the incarcerated people that I'm teaching recognize, um, Solidarity with other animals, and Mm. because of the conditions of a lack of dignity or denial of dignity that they experience in prisons. And so there's ways in which, um, and I think this is also something that happens in all sorts of communities um, of those humans who have been, quote unquote, othered. That's a sort of more abstract way of thinking about it, but outgroups, what Alice was calling outgroups. um, I think that recognizing that that structure of making out groups relies on us not connecting ourselves with animals, not recognizing mm-hmm. their dignity, is a really clear way of bringing us together in solidarity with one another. Um, and I think that that's a really important notion, and it's happening all over the place. It's happening in sort of Black Vegan Soul Fest community conferences. It's happening um, in, as I was mentioning, in sanctuaries. So there's ways in which, um, and it's happening um, with a group of of incarcerated folks who are trying to get better foods in their in their in the prisons, um, so I think that there's all sorts of political space, and that's part of the work that we're doing um, for recognizing and being in solidarity with other animals as well as other humans who are struggling with various forms of prejudice and indignity.
0: I really love your message. I mean, I, I've often felt that. Look, I've been. Uh been a vegetarian at times throughout my life and I have a lot of respect for for that, but I've always been uh, a little disheartened that that is for, for so many of us, the, the end all be all of our conversation about animal welfare rights, you name it has been, Hey, do you eat meat or not? Or do you eat meat or dairy or not? And the end, right. And that's how it's presented to the public. I know that many, you know, vegetarians and vegans have more uh, uh, complex analyses than that, but um, uh, I love for me, what you're saying really helps me connect that to everything else I try to do in my life, which is, hey, I'm not I'm not gonna worry about so much about plastic bags, how many plastic bags I take over from the store. I'm gonna try to avoid it, but really I'm gonna work on trying to dismantle the systems that, you know, result in such incredible amounts of pollution and climate change, et cetera. And the same framework can be applied to uh, animal issues that we can, the, the real issue is, is, dismantling these systems and also seeing how those systems are connected to the other systems that I'm worried exactly, about. And, exactly. And, and you connected it to incarceration and criminal justice, which is another system that I am, uh, incredibly concerned about. Um, and, and obviously the connection is there. So, uh, I, I really love talking to you. This has been really enlightening and fascinating to me. I, and thank you so much for coming on the show to talk to us about it.
2: Thank you so thank much you. for having us. It was a great conversation. Thanks, Adam.
0: Well, thank you once again to Alice Crary and Lori Gruen for coming on the show. Their book, Animal Crisis, is available at factuallypod.com slash books. That's factuallypod.com slash books. I want to thank our producer, Sam Roundman, and our engineer, Ryan Connor, and of course, everyone who is supporting this show at the $15 a month level on Patreon. Uh, that's Whiskey Nerd 88 Tyler Derrock, Susan E. Fisher, Spencer Campbell, Shannon Grimmett, Sam Ogden, Samantha Schultz, Robin Madison, Richard Watkins, Rachel Nieto, Paul Malk, Newyagic, look Nikki Batelli Nicholas Morris Mrs. King Coke Mom Named Gwen Miles Gillingsrud Mark Long Lisa Matulis Lacey Tiganoff Kelly Lucas Kelly Casey Julia Russell Jim Shelton Hilary Wolkin M. Dude with Games Drill Bill David Conover David Condry Courtney Henderson Chris Staley Charles Anderson Camus and Lego Brandon Sisko Brayden Beth Brevik Aurelio Jimenez Antonio LB Ann Slagle Alan Liska Allison Liparado, Alexi Batalov and Adrian Thank you once again if you want to join their ranks head to Patreon dot com slash Adam Conover thank you also to Falcon Northwest for building me the incredible custom gaming PC that I'm recording this very episode for you on Andrew wk for our theme song you can find me online at adamconover.net or at adamconover wherever you get your social media thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time on Factually